Are you ready? Are you shitty down? The Shine On Podcast 2022. I've said before and I'll say it again. Divorce affects so many people out there. The money, the property, the assets, so many high-profile divorces. The conflict, the allegations, huge legal fee and support awards, you name it. Divorce is a true team sport. Incredible insight. Hot divorce stories. Shine On Podcast. Shine On Podcast. The Shine On Podcast 2022. It's episode 38 of the Shine On Podcast. I'm Evan Shine. We have an absolutely incredible episode this week and a terrific guest. Joining us this week on the Shine On Podcast is former New York County Supreme Court matrimonial judge Matthew Cooper. Judge Cooper recently retired from the bench in December 2021. He presided in the matrimonial part at the famous courthouse in Lower Manhattan, at 60 Center Street since 2009. It's only been a few months, and Judge Cooper is already missed. Judge Cooper has made a tremendous difference in the matrimonial community and the bar, and he has left a tremendous legacy. The impact that he had on families, attorneys, and the practice of law is something that, without a doubt, will be felt for a very, very long time. I still remember my first court appearance 12 years ago in front of Judge Cooper and my last one. At the end of December 2021, just days before Judge Cooper's final day on the bench, and just like the very first appearance that I had 12 years ago, Judge Cooper spent hours and hours working to help settle the case, to help the parents put aside their differences for their children and to avoid having a custody trial. This should come as absolutely no surprise to any attorney who has appeared before him, because this is who Judge Cooper was. And on today's episode, I'm going to talk with Judge Cooper about his career on the bench, what inspired him to be a lawyer and a judge, what he loved about being a matrimonial judge, the debate of being in person versus virtual litigation, and what does he miss the most? We're also going to find out what's next for Judge Cooper, which is coming up on this week's episode of the Shine On Podcast. And trust me, this is an interview you do not want to miss and producer Dave, we're going to get right into this tremendous spot with Judge Matthew Cooper, and the docket in the Shine of Spotlight is going to be back for episode 39. We have an absolutely terrific featured guest today on the Shine On podcast. On today's episode, I sit down with former New York County Supreme Court Judge Matthew Cooper, who retired from the matrimonial bench in December 2021. Judge Cooper has had a terrific career as a lawyer and as a judge since 2001. And Judge Cooper, since 2009, presided exclusively in the matrimonial part in New York County. I'm going to talk with Judge Cooper about life as a judge and what life is like when he's not wearing the black robe. We're going to talk about his career. What's it like to preside over matrimonial and family law matters virtually during the pandemic, the cases that kept him up at night, and we're going to get an inside look into what he's doing now and life outside the courtroom. So from inside the courtroom to the Shine Up podcast, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Judge Cooper to this week's episode of the Shine Up podcast. Judge, how are you? Good. Thank you, Evan. It's really a uh, real pleasure to be here. This is in my first podcast ever, so this is a momentous event, and it's great to be back with you. We've had, we've had, how many years did we have together uh, doing cases? I would say about Probably. definitely over 10 years. 10 years, yep. No, I remember when you started, came in as they used the term baby lawyer, right? That was you. <laughs> and now your name's on the firm. Right. So that, that's great. right. Look, look, look at that. And, 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 and Judge, it's great to have you with us for your first podcast and really to have you on the Shine Up podcast. And on today's episode, I want to really get to know Judge Cooper. And before we're going to dive into your tremendous legal career, let's talk about what life has been like for you since retiring from the bench in December 2021. How's retirement been? Yeah, retirement's been great. Just was actually in Greece for a week and a half. And despite COVID restrictions, that trip was really a great trip. It went very well. No problems. And that's the sort of thing when I was away, which made a difference. When I was away, when I was a judge, I would have constantly been thinking about 
all my cases. So it's a little bit different. This time I was able to worry about the, instead worrying about the tire pressure light going on in my rental car, you know, so it was, <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is a different, ex, a different experience. I do sleep better. That's one thing that I've clearly noticed. I used to wake up. Yeah, actually, it happened probably soon after becoming a judge, but it really became more once I became a matrimonial judge. You know, once, twice a night, wake up and start thinking about a case. Should I have done this? Was this the right decision? Should I do something else? I have a little less of that now. So life good. is a, it's a good it's a good deal more relaxed. And but at the same time, as we'll talk about, I miss a lot of it. And I was going to ask you, leading into that question, tell us what you miss about being in a courtroom, about being a judge, whether it's your colleagues, whether it's about working with families. And you've done such a tremendous job over the years. But tell us, what do you miss? I think one of the things I miss is something. This might sound surprising. If you go off to judge school early on, when you first get a little, that was when I was first left to the civil court. You go off, you spend, back in those days, you spent a week up, I think it was uh, someplace, I think it was in Westchester. And one of the lessons they kept pounding to on you, your life is going to be much more monastic, much more much more self-contained. It's not going to like be the days like when you were a lawyer and you were going to be out there fraternizing with people. I turned out, found out to me, I basically found that not to be the case, especially in matrimonial, because there was so much people involvement. You were involved with the lawyers. As you go, how much time will we spend back in the robing room? trying to resolve cases. So there was really a huge amount of personal interaction. And one of the really great things about being a matrimonial part is even though the lawyers might not always behave and they might act like they don't like each other, some, then sometimes they just have to do that because there's this sort of peculiar notion that clients have that their lawyers aren't really represent them well unless they're at each other's throats. By and large, it was a group that really did like each other and a group that gets along and a group that understands that each lawyer's word is his or her bond. So when we were back in the roving room, there'd be a pretty free exchange of ideas. They'd even do a little gossip, a little catching up for a minute or two on who was watching what on Netflix. We take care of business. We take care of business. So there was a lot of great social interaction with people who by and large, I respected and liked a great deal. So that was one of, that was one of, that's one of the things I miss that, I mean, I saw all my friends and my family, but I kind of miss some of that social interaction. The second thing I guess I would say is, you know, it is that you're, you're the center of a lot of drama. And as you know, in a divorce case, it's never this, it's the judge isn't some like third party that's there unseen, unheard, you know, just, or certainly, and, and he's, judge is part of the whole, uh, part of the action. And other like, in other lawsuits, you know, in civil, other civil matters, yeah, the judge is sort of a removed figure. In a matrimonial case, it's part of the story, unfortunately, for many, many ways, because as you know, what do, you, what do clients think? When they don't get what they want, it's often the judge was, it was the judge's fault. You know, it's never like their fault it was the judge's fault. So, but besides that though, but you still were important. You still made, you still every day there was important things to do. And that takes a little getting used to. Now I'm just a regular guy on the subway, but, <laughs> but I also always realized it wasn't me who was important. It's the position. And when I left, you know, what it, and I realized, as my friend of mine once said, who had an important job and left, it's a rented identity. So, you know, there are people out there, judges out there who are retired judges who are in their 90s years old and living in Florida in their condo community insist on being called your honor. No, that's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I was important as a judge. Now I'm back to being me and hopefully making, still making a contribution in other ways. Judge, you mentioned something that I want to ask you about because it's the camaraderie. It's you mentioned being back in chambers, whether it's with other attorneys, whether it's with, you know, your, your, your clerks, whether it's with your staff, whether it's with, you know, the attorneys and, and different people who can have a conversation, discuss ideas, who know each other, who could really strategize on how to figure this out for the family. And we'll talk about the pandemic, but I would imagine that 
That's something that's been incredibly hard over the past two years, being in chambers, being in the courtroom, having those moments, having that time to be in person with the attorneys, with the clients, to really figure things out in person for families. Absolutely, Evan. That's probably one of the main factors that caused me to retire. I could have stayed on a few more years, but I decided it was the right time to do it. But one of them was the move towards virtual. Really, it, did, it, it wasn't me. It, I didn't, it didn't play to my strengths. The, most, the best way to resolve cases, the best way to find out and to find out the truth and get, or to the extent we ever can know the truth in a case is having the people actually before you. And I found nothing worked as well as having people in the courtroom or even more importantly, back in the roving room where there was some direct communication. And you, I think you, you just you make a great point that I hear I was surrounded by my court clerks, sorry, my great court attorneys, Mr. Corbo, Ms. Quinn, and before them, and Ms. Devine. And these, they were great. And there's a sort of synergy that happens. We basically, you became a team. and when you had the court, when you bring in the attorneys, a free exchange of ideas, I would work sometimes. As you might recall, I'd bring one group in, then bring another group in, and then go. Then I would, we call it shuttle diplomacy. Sure. Couldn't, never could do that virtually. I know there's like mechanisms for doing it. And this might be the, you know, this might be the generation factor. I know there's like breakout rooms and all these other things on teams and, but it just never felt the same to me. I've even said from the attorney perspective, even when we were waiting on those days in front of judge Cooper in your part on, on, on Wednesdays, when you heard motions and you had the preliminary conferences, it would give the attorneys the opportunity to go in the hall. Even if we had to wait 30 minutes or three hours for the case to be called but to really have a productive and meaningful dialogue about the case, about the situation. And often we would be able to settle the issues before they're ever brought to your honor's attention. And I think for even from the attorney's perspective, that's the piece of the practice that's missing because we log on to court appearances virtually, we log off. And I feel even from the attorney perspective, there's not as much discussion and dialogue that takes place between the virtual court appearances. Do you get a sense of I that from you. what you've seen? Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think when I came, I've made reference to the to the courtroom and then the robing room, which is the which no one really robes anymore. It's just the robe, the room in the back where uh, <laughs> where you know you don't need a special robe room to put the put your little robe on, but that's what they call robing room. It's the back room and where where you would have uh, you know, where the court attorneys would have their offices. But there's a third, there's a third component of that courtroom, and you hit upon it perfect, the hallway. So we had the hallway, the courtroom, the robing room. So what would happen? I would then on a Wednesday, 50 cases in there, and I'm and they're all not going to be heard at the same time. In fact, there was a, a lesson probably for people to sit there and watch other cases and get an idea that, hey, you know what? I'm not the only person in the world who has a case on, and I can't demand the attention of everybody all the time. And, you know, of course, you know, in Manhattan, we have some people who do believe that, right? Some very some <laughs> just powerful, powerful people getting divorced who suddenly said, well, I'm, I've been important in business. I should be important here as well. Yeah, you're important, but there are other people too. But there would be, what, you, what would happen is that, okay, why don't you go out in the hallway and talk about it? And that so much was done out in the hallway between the lawyers. And I'm told, and maybe you can you know, add to this, is that often lawyers then would then, when they were down in the court, they would see other lawyers who they had on other cases and say, hey, by the way, what's going, can we talk for a few minutes about this or that? And stuff got done. It's much more, at least I, my sense, and I think you're confirming that, you don't really have that interaction when it's virtual. You get on for an hour, you don't talk before, you don't talk after, it's the next Absolutely. And I think the other piece of it you mentioned, which I totally agree with, when clients can see what a courtroom looks like, hear other cases, see other people going through it while they wait, there's almost this light bulb that goes off that, that people then say to themselves, you know what, 
I should probably settle my case. And I think that experience is also missing for many clients. Yeah, I think there's, and two other things I'd really like to, I thought about, but virtual versus the actual in court. One is sort of the gravitas of being there. All right, my courthouse, courthouse, you probably spend most of your time, 60 Center Street, those giant columns, looks like I was just, I was just in Greece and it looked like, and I said, wow, <laughs> they, they designed all those Greek temples to look like 60 Center Street. <laughs> it has, you walk up those steps through that majestic lobby where the, the rotunda, you know, which, and then courtroom. It is a little shabby because New York could certainly use more money for its court system, but it's still pretty big and impressive. And that's that sort of gravity. There you are. You're in a public forum where justice is being done. And instead, what happens sometimes on some of these, these uh, virtual appearances? I have people in their cars. I have people, actually someone lying in bed <laughs> and people, <laughs> you can be any. So it detracts from the whole, it detracts from the seriousness of this sense of awe that might have about that. Hey, we're part of this legal process. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, this, it was like walking into the United States Supreme Court. It was a much more casual than that, but it still was a court. The other thing was, and sometimes I hesitate to say this because it sounds sort of peculiar, but I think it's definitely true. Matrimonial cases, you know, are, they're different. And sometimes if you make it too easy on the litigants, they will not, it will never be resolved because yeah, you know it, a lot of, you've had cases where people just want to inflict pain on the other side, right? Yep. You and, see it all the time, sure. And it's a lot easier to do that. If you don't, let's say you happen to be, you're living in California and you're just litigating, or you're you just hit your Zoom or Teams link and there you are. And you can, whereas if actual appearances, all right, Mr. So-and-so, all right, Ms. So-and-so, you really want to push that point. We're going to have a hearing and you have to be here. So it is a kind of put your money where your mouth is type of experience. A lot easier to litigate in terms of, in terms of the, what you have to endure in terms, if you can do it remotely. Yes. Sometimes people would say, you know, I had to come down and spend six hours in the courthouse. Sometimes it isn't such a bad thing. No, it's not. And then the case settled at the yeah. five-hour mark yeah. as opposed yeah. to going on for several months yeah. or, or years. Yeah, I would acknowledge some things probably should stay virtual. You know, like, like maybe you do a, the preliminary conference where if the lawyer happens, a lawyer has her office up in Westchester, the other lawyer has her office in Long, in Long Island, and it's going to be a 20-minute appearance. Maybe it makes sense to be able to do that, not have to spend, not have to bill your clients for an hour and a half commute. That so some instances, virtual definitely helps. But when it comes down to when it comes to the really nitty-gritty of fine, we gotta get moving a case along. And because the longer divorce goes, especially with their kids, we know how bad is it? It's the worst thing that can possibly happen to a family. That was terrible. You see it, I see it. And Judge, let's take a look back to the moment for you when you knew that you wanted to be a lawyer, you wanted to be a judge. Look, kids grow up dreaming of all different things, whether it's to be a baseball player for the Yankees or, you know, a firefighter, you know, for you, was there a moment where you knew that you wanted to be a lawyer? How did you get into the field and how did you know that you wanted to be a judge? Well, I probably knew I was never going to be it since I, I was always picked last for <laughs> softball. I wasn't going to be playing for the Yankees. And since I, uh, did not know how to play an instrument. There was no chance I was going to be touring with the Stones or Bruce Springsteen. So, but I have actually an interesting background. My, you know, my father's parents were from Eastern Europe. Basically, never really learned to read English. My mother's parents had been here for a while. You know, they had been. They were probably, I think, my great great grandparents probably came in. My grandfather. Emerson was a lawyer, graduated from NYU in 1921. And here's the really remarkable thing. My grandmother, Ruth Simon Welkowitz, graduated, Ruth Welkowitz Simon, graduated from NYU, same year, 1921. She was one of three women in the in her law school class from oh, wow. NYU. 
incredible. I always thought it was pretty hard. My grandfather must have been quite the guy since he managed <laughs> <laughs> all those guys and that few women. He managed, and so and they uh, and so I had two grandparents who were, uh, who were lawyers. So the year I think it was the year Yankee Stadium was built. Was Yankee Stadium was twenty? I think they were mid twenty two, which I think is the same yep. year that. So I used to say the year the House of Ruth was built was the year that Ruth welcomed with Simon <laughs> became a lawyer. Yeah. So. It was always in my family, skipped a generation, my uh, mother and, uh, and none of my grandparents, uh, none of uh, her siblings became lawyers. I then ended up after college going to something, I went into as a VISTA volunteer, which was the kind of the urban Peace Corps. I was sent to the South Bronx where I worked for a legal services office and it was a great experience. So it was like one of those eye-opening experiences that you... Uh, changes your life. I then decided, yeah, I did want to be a lawyer and went off to Antioch School of Law, which stressed urban poverty law, was very, very geared towards clinical approach. Had some things that made it different than anything, any other. You lived for a few weeks with a family in a low-income area. You did uh, lots of different things. And uh, you different than your typical law school. You also had a good time. And it was also it was also always in crisis because it was different than your typical law school. It had it was founded by two deans who had a vision, and vision often confront conflicts with how it works. So it was like anarchy. Like yeah, the day before a civil procedure was going to be taught, they were still looking for a professor. So end result, <laughs> yeah, end result with that was I came out wanted to do a certain type of law, but got involved in working for some labor unions during their legal services. And it was, but there was this weird, this thing, I always wanted to be a judge. I always, has, so I always had the idea, you know, I think I could do a really good job. I also would say and something I might have forgotten a few times on the bench. I like to treat lawyers the way I would have wanted to be treated. I wanted to be treated by a judge. Occasionally it didn't always work, but for the most part, try to, I tried to adhere to that. And it all worked, got elected because you know, we have a political process in uh, New York for certain judgeships, got elected, and then the civil court, then ultimately the Supreme Court. What did you love most about being a judge? Okay, so I'm gonna think two things. I think I'm just thinking when I, I did a number of years in criminal court, and I remember the thing when, I, when someone said, What would you, what do you love there the most? It was when a jury came back with a verdict. It was like so there was i would just have hand me up the verdict sheet look <laughs> hopefully it wasn't an inconsistent verdict but it was that great and then realizing that those people in that jury and these were misdemeanors that i was trying that those people in the jury had spent two days on a case that really the punishment wasn't going to be great but they took it so seriously it was just seeing the whole so seeing the whole process work then carry that forward into what we ultimately did in uh, matrimonial part was big, and it sounds cliched and corny, but it's true. You were able, I, would, I often felt I was able to make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, And I'm not sure if I would have felt that way so much if I was doing law that wasn't so related to people. You know, and I'm not putting that down. One of my colleagues love commercial. They love, you know, it's very important. It's what we need that in for the our whole nature of life here, you know, business law. But what I really liked in the particular the things that I did, be it criminal or regular civil, even small claims, and then of course, most of all in matrimonial, with being able to have to make a difference in the problems that everyday people had. And Judge, presiding over the matrimonial part, I would imagine there's nothing you haven't seen. Domestic violence, high conflict custody cases, cases that have gone on for years and years, far longer than they ever should have. People arguing just for the sake of arguing. You mentioned that before. People putting their children right in the middle of the conflict. You see, otherwise, good people acting at their worst. When you think back to the years you presided in the matrimonial part, what were the types of cases that kept you up at night, the types of decisions that you had to write that just weighed heavily on you having to work with families who were going through such 
incredible conflict and, and, and really hard times. Yeah, and I think, oh, Adam, when I say this, I'm sure all my colleagues, and I have great, I had great colleagues, but I still, I'll say have, because I still feel so close to all the, the other, my matrimonial colleagues who work really hard and really take this so seriously, is the cases that would really keep you up are the ones where you could see the child not doing well. And when I actually just spoke to a colleague recently and she reminded and who called to tell me about to be able to like share some, <laughs> some of her anxiety, the case where a child was taken by one parent to another jurisdiction and then totally without justification and then the ordered that have the child return. And then the child says, well, if I return, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to cause myself harm. Those are the hardest cases of all. Those are the cases where kids have been caught in the middle. Kids, children are damaged. And you live in fear of, wow, what? This is what I, I, this is what the facts require. This is what the law requires. But what impact is this really going to have on the child? They're, uh, so, so the, those, those, yeah, the, you know, when I would meet somebody's children, of course, because you know what, you know, we do something, you'll probably, which is something you'll never get to see as a lawyer. Yeah. We do, it, it, tell yeah, us so about that. Tell you, yeah, tell your listeners, we'll tell your the people tuning in. There's something called the Lincoln hearing, which we do in custody cases. We meeting judges in both in divorces and has nothing to do with Abraham Lincoln. It's just the name of the case was Lincoln versus Lincoln. And at a certain point, generally at the end of a custody trial, the judge gets to speak to the child with only the child's attorney there. The parties aren't present. The attorney, their attorneys aren't present. They can submit questions. And then you get to hear from the, from the child. And so often I would hear, I just want my parents to get along. I just don't want to be caught in this. I don't really care if I'm with my father 48% of the time, my mother 52, or if with my father 67% and with my mother 37. I don't care if I'm with spouse, with parent A, parent B, this. I just want them to get along and let me be able to live, live my life. And when you hear things like that, I mean, it has to be, I mean, heartbreaking. It has to be, yeah, I mean, you, you see these cases go on for years and years. And then once in a while you get kids, you know, they come in, it was actually kind of uplifting. They were like still resilient. And they said, look, you know, love both my parents. Yeah, I, th I think things will get better. And it's amazing. I mean, how many often, how often I would bump into people on the street and I'd hear, I, excuse me, are you Judge Cooper? And then you know, there's always that moment <laughs> of hesitation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember me? I had this case and I said, and I just want you to tell you, remember, and we were fighting viciously because when our child was 10 years old, and we're, we're both going off to his, his college graduation today. Both me and my ex, my ex uh, spouse are going off to the graduation together to say things have been great. So you, you remarkable how sometimes if they can get out of the war, you can end it. It can be actually a fairly okay piece. And Judge, I would imagine those are the moments for you, the story that you just mentioned years later, when people realize that they're going to a birthday party, a college graduation, walking their child down the aisle. Take us back into the divorce process and, and the mistakes that people make that they don't see at the time. They don't see at the moment. They don't see when they're going through the divorce process because it's so hard and so emotional. But what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make, whether it's in a litigation, in a courtroom, that ends up where these cases go on and on? Okay, so I think some are like sort of technical, some are, are the worldview. One of them is the first biggest mistake, I'm totally right, and the other person is, terribly, is totally wrong. Once in a while, maybe on a, I can give a handful of cases where that was the where that was the situation, and that's normally because somebody has one of the one of the parties had some serious personality disorder, or something. But generally, it's not. There's, there's 
there's, there's, let's face it, it's good and bad. But as my grandfather said, you know, there'd be his, her, his side, her side, and the truth. You know, there's a, there's, it's never, it's never exactly the way it's portrayed. So that's one thing people do. The other thing is that it's worth that only I can make these, my child's life okay. And it's worth brutalizing the other side to, to push that position because that only has collateral damage on the child. And I guess, you know, so that's what I think third, the third thing I might see that I know we're going to, we're going to prop problems right off when people would, would come in is looking to just dwell on the past and get some form of vindication. And I make, we always make a clip of it. There's not going to be a proclamation made here. You, litigant A, are the good parent or the good spouse, and you, litigant B, are the bad parent or the bad spouse. That doesn't happen. It's the question is, what can we do so everybody can move on, divide their assets, and equitably work out support, and most of all, if they're children, figure out how are you going to raise these children in some form of, I would say, it raise them together in some form of togetherness. The difference that this are cases where that just doesn't work and one parent's going to do the bulk of it, but the goal is how are you going to end up having two parents move on who are no longer living together? Some of the, the other thing, by good, but it's sort of more technical is when you get a litigant in it who has changed lawyers four or five times. The red flag just goes off. <laughs> red flag goes off because most of those lawyers were good lawyers. And sometimes people have to understand, hey, this doesn't have what's happening in this case. And because I'm not getting what I want, doesn't necessarily mean because I have bad lawyers or a judge who doesn't like me or a court system that is unfeeling and unresponsive. Sometimes it's, their problems on the part of that particular person. So, so that's it. So you, you see, yeah, litigants digging in their heels, saying, "I will not settle this case for less than." Duh, duh, duh. That's always yeah. That is a a big mistake because it's a continuum. Things change even during the case, and it's not often the case. It's not what we had. And I had a couple of cases I inherited from my when I took over from uh, Justice Sarah Lee Evans' part, and that was had been like. When I left 12 years later, I still had a couple, I still had one case of hers where they were still battling. And my last, and the last week I signed the judgment, but they'll battle forever because there's a, everybody's too invested, too invested in the fight. That becomes the reason for being. And Judge, you've been mentioned in many high-profile cases. You mentioned being a matrimonial judge in New York and in New York County in Manhattan. Many of the people, a lot of the people who appear in front of you are people who, you know, we talked about whether it's business owners or work in the financial world or, you know, ha have a certain sense of, of, of themselves in terms of their profession and their career. What are the challenges that come with these high-profile celebrity cases? And so like on the ones, let's say the non-celebrities, but powerful business people, sure. you get what you get what the, you get what we call the emperor of the emperors of the universe syndrome, which is hard. Those people aren't used to being told what's going to happen. They're not, they're not used to not to that. They're not used to the fact that they won't be running the show. They are not used to not getting what they want. And so though that, could be difficult. That's where good lawyers would also come in. Good lawyers would make a clear look. You know, you may run the blah 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 hedge fund, but that is not necessary. That's not going to end up making sure that you. You know, people are going to be kowtowing to you. So good lawyers would prepare them for it. And I sort of part of the court is to say, look, this is yeah, and understand your part. I understand you do all this stuff, but we have some. Serious, we have issues involving your children here, and some of the traits that make one, if I can just make this observation, that make one really successful in business don't necessarily make one a good litigant or sometimes even a good parent, you very or a good spouse. You know, people sometimes you'd be amazed sometimes I can't, I'm like, that this person makes this much money, but 
drive and ruthlessness and you know, sort of uh, over the giant ego. They all can make, they can be effective in certain finance and certain business at, at business world realms, but they don't necessarily make one uh, the perfect parent. And so maybe the problem on high profile case, and I had plenty of famous actors and that said, you have the press involved. And let me just say at one point, I'm not going to mention names, but I had a very famous actor and back and in the robing room with his wife they said, look, he said, look, I understand I made a deal in order to be where I am, that my life is going to be somewhat public. The press is going to be out there. They are going to be following this. That's just the way it is. That's, that's, you know, that was, again, my deal with the devil, but my child didn't make this deal. And so all what we both want is to keep our child, our children out of the press and we want to be able to resolve those issues without articles and you know what there never was there was never one mention even of the child even of the child's or the children's names throughout the whole proceedings so they did it so it can be done but it's an extra challenge because people love divorces right yeah they love reading about them. what's the da- the daily mail and all <laughs> what is, what is how much of it is about you know, people love seeing Famous people not doing well. You know, they like to see that. No, it's true. But in that, in that story, in that situation, it was both of them. They both shared that desire to, to shield their child from the spotlight. Right. They had attorneys. Right. They had a judge. Everyone understood that was the goal. But, but the parents themselves were unified. And I'm sure you see where that might be one parent's goal. But far too often, another parent would use the the publicity or the papers as a way to leverage the other parent yes and that would happen and that is where i see the judge's role is to make sure is to do everything possible to squelch that yeah to make sure that there are and i would say you do that there are going to be consequences I mean, sometimes some friends, I once heard two uh, psychologists, you know, do what friends are psychologists, and they said what often you need in these divorce cases is a judge who the people are scared of. So it sounds kind of weird that that's it, you know, but that's what you need because in a lot of cases, people are going to act badly. But, but if they understand that there are consequences, perhaps they won't. And that's what I think I, you know, I hope I did that well. Sometimes, you know, I may have done a little too much. Sometimes I may have on occasions pressed the wrong person, you know, you, cause you, then that's, that's kind of thing. I might wake up in the middle of the night. So, you know, I was like really giving the father a really hard time. And you know what? I'm not sure if he's really the culprit here, but then I, I, and I think one of the things I was known for, okay, I would it, okay, we reverse myself and apologize. No, you absolutely. Know, I, yeah. Yeah. I, said, I may have missed this one, but you couldn't just be neutral though. In many cases, if you were just understanding and sitting there and saying, yes, I understand. Parents would sometimes parents would just do really terrible things for the reason you talked about, you know, try to go, try to get the press, try to get publicity, try to do all this to, to try to gain an advantage. And we, we always press, look, there's no advantage gained when the ultimate result is your child's suffering. And if you can do this, you can push it. You know what? You're going to end up with a kid who's not happy, a kid who's not going to function well, a kid who's not going to grow up to be a good, a good, well, a good, uh, healthy, well-functioning adult. And Judge, as you look back at, at your career as a judge, is there a type of case or a particular case that you're incredibly proud of where you look back either in the moment at the time or in the past few months since you've been off the bench, that was incredibly meaningful to you. Yeah, you know, it, and we keep always in my custody, but in custody, and with custody is the term that we use, you know, for who takes care of, how do you, how do you raise children? Who is the person who's going to do it? I think one of the things I did a decision, JR versus MS, where I pushed to 
change that notion that there is a custodial parent and a non-custodial parent. Because I looked at what was happening in, certainly in the people who appear before us in New York County, where it was no longer, it wasn't the 1950s, and it was not even the 80s, the 90s. It was fathers, mothers, both were equally involved in their children's lives. But the old adage had been, or the old, the, the traditional view was you could only have, quote, joint custody if the parents got along well, they were able to communicate, they just happened to be divorced, but they could still be almost good friends. No, but that's not what, that was not the reality. And you know it, we have cases where the parents are never going to really get along well, and they might not even communicate all that well, but giving one of them the mantle, the official position of the custodial parent just isn't appropriate because there you're going to have in this case you're going to have dad who was going to be who was going to be the coach of the soccer game difficult guy maybe, maybe but you know i'm probably very hard for the mother to deal with but to make him the non-custodial parent it's almost like a red badge of uh of uh, dishonor in that case because he basically was okay as a parent he had he definitely had Parenting skills are just difficult to get along with. So came up with spheres, you know, each certain areas we decided to make decisions. So that was one thing I was proud of to move away from this strict custodial, non-custodial parent. I move away from the term, you know, was it visitation? Because it sounded like, yeah, visitation sounds like something that happens in a hospital or a jail. You know, we talk about parental access. So a more cooperative, a decision where even though parents weren't cooperative, as long as there wasn't, you know, extreme discourse and things like domestic violence and the like, you could still have a situation where you could at least come up with a rubric, come up with a with a and a formula where they can both be able to say, "Yeah, I'm fully invested in my child's upbringing." So those are cases I felt really good about. I was a, I uh, felt pretty good about the decision I did where I, the whole notion of attorney's fees, you know, I get game, big game, gave rise to a term that's always used all the time, the skin, <laughs> skin in the game, you know, for a long time, it was always moving towards moneyed spouse pays all the non-moneyed spouse counsel fees. At a certain point, I realized, I said, you know, at a certain point that like overly empowers the non-moneyed spouse because the non-moneyed spouse can take a unreasonable position and just not only litigate forever, but litigate on the other spouse's dime. So that was, I think that also changed the way we looked at attorney's fees. Still, we still then you still, of course, attorneys to get awarded to the moneyed spouse, but to the, I'm sorry, to the non-moneyed spouse, but we'll take a look and say, well, okay, we just like figure out how much, you know, we don't want to overdo this so that, so that we basically empower the less moneyed spouse to pursue this. But Evan, I think no question about it. The cases that make me feel the best are the ones where I will sometimes hear from somebody or see so or through an attorney and say, you know what? They're doing well now. Okay. Remember, remember little Susie Smith? Just graduated from Harvard. Could you believe it? Yeah, that's so that's and that happens more often than you would think because but it was I think the but of course the real the uh Real congratulations has to go to the parents who ultimately said, you know what? We got to stop doing this and we got to work together. And then good things can happen. No, and I'm sure, you know, when you hear things like that, it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding. It's, it's great to hear. Judge, you've been involved in, in the legal field for, for decades. When you look at the legal system, and we've talked about litigating virtually in the court system today, what was it like to when you first started? whether as an attorney or a judge in 2001, and really the evolution of the court system, and where do you see it going in 2022 and beyond? Okay, so remember, I started as a lawyer in, man, when was it? 79, right? 80. Yeah, so long. <laughs> I'll tell you, in those days, and I did, I represent lots of people, mostly men in, in divorce cases. I worked for two labor unions, which we did actually work for the members, which was great because it gave people who wouldn't otherwise have the ability to have lawyers be represented. In those cases, it was pretty formulaic. Dad got vacated. Dad got 
one weeknight and every other weekend, that was it. And it's never going to be, was never going to be the, because mom was the custodial parents, all that changed. So this, so in terms of like the basic thrust of domestic, of uh, domestic relations, dramatic, dramatic changes. Hey, if there'd been 40 years ago, if a parent had been gay, that might've been a disqualifier. So now of course makes zero difference. I mean, and I think probably I'm amazed at how flex, how this court system overall and how our system laws have adopted and I hope will continue to do so to meet changing changes in society. And when we first, we had, when you first had a case that came in with the with same sex because people had been married, like in Canada, I remember it was like, wow, wait, what's going on here? Wait, who's the, it was so, ended up being exactly the same. I don't think it would ever, it's, you know, the calendar, maybe 10% of your cases would be same sex divorces, zero difference. I think the whole way we did the court system, basically, it's, it reflects, maybe it's a little bit behind, but it reflects the changes in our, in our fabric of our social fabric. You know, it's, I think the court system, I think getting representation has become easier. There are many more programs that do it. The, you know, the courts, there's been a lot of money spent, but part of like a housing to have to be able to have people represent. I used to represent people all the time in housing court, because that's what I did when I worked for the, for the unions, although we did everything, but it was, but most people, if they didn't have the union representation and they were, they weren't poor enough to have legal services, they'd be there on their own. And that's all that's changed. So I, we, there's a, I think a push towards it, making sure that people have access to representation. And Joe, you mentioned one, one of the cases, just go backwards for a second. You mentioned one of the cases about uh, a decision you wrote about parenting and custody. When you look around the country at states that have this presumption of shared equal parenting and you've seen a shift in new york county and in new york do you see new york getting to the place where there is that presumption and obviously there's exceptions but but do you see new york getting to a place from from legislation where there is a presumption of shared parenting time and it's funny you mentioned that you always think about new york being ahead of everything and domestic relations law not necessarily so most so there are lots of states out there that have 50, they have that joint custody is presumptive. So you have to show reason for the not to be joint custody. They also have a lot of, some states have, and I'm not sure whether I think this is a good thing or a bad thing, a presumption of 50-50 access time. I'll tell you in a second why I'm not sure if I think it's a good or bad thing. I think I see New York moving towards that. It is, there is definitely, a, a, one time it was assumed that mom would have custody. That was just the way it was. Tender years doctrine, little kids need to be with their mother. That's clearly changed. And I think whether or not it's ever, it's whatever the legislature does, if they, in fact, they, the case law has moved it towards more of, if not a presumption, that generally has to be at least, you know, some reason why you're not going to have joint custody, why you're not going to have both people. And it often isn't not going to be necessarily called joint custody. And there are ways of doing it. Let's say mom gets to decide medical, dad gets to decide educational, or systems where they try where there's a tiebreaker. You have a parent coordinator or a pediatrician or a school guidance counselor. Those, there's all sorts of ways to, to make sure that both parents have a say in their upbringing of the children and are fully involved, invested in it. That is definitely, whether or not there's going to be a statutory presumption, that is definitely the trend. The other thing, the equal access gets a little complicated because I'm sure over the last five, six years, you'd hear what parent would come in, let's say it's the father. I want 50-50 access. That has become sort of the mantra, where before that wasn't. And I would often say, look, that shouldn't be the, you don't want to, I used to say, you don't want to like, you know, William James Bryan, crucify the country on the cross of gold. Well, this is, you don't want to crucify the child on the cross of 50-50. Yeah, children don't know, they don't keep track of the exact times. So, 
if it's not equal, that's not, that's, that's more a parental issue than a child issue. What you want is have access that's meaningful, that's rewarding, that's significant and substantial, but it doesn't necessarily have to be 50, 50, but that has become the biggest, the last few years I was doing this, it was like, okay, we can work out the schedule. And then all of a sudden, well, that's not 50, 50, that's 49, <laughs> 52, you know, 51. So that would be a problem. Hey, Judge, I want to talk about the state of the court system and then segue into what you're doing right now. Many people, when they think of the court system, they think of long delays, they think of the backlog. And I think COVID-19 in many ways really amplified a concern that many people have about the process and about the system. And nobody would know this better than you, because in many ways, I would think the backlog that existed started well before COVID. And I think it's, it sort of became an easy, easy excuse to say, oh, well, COVID has made a significant backlog. Right. Yes, it did to some extent, especially for matrimonials, but I'll tell you why in a second. But yeah, the court system has always been overloaded. You have to settle cases. Otherwise, you can't, you can, you can't keep up with the, with the volume. If every case, divorce case would come in was to have a trial, it would be impossible, <laughs> impossible <laughs> to never do it. But that's for everything. When people say, you know, they're in criminal court, oh my, it's, it's a wrong, it's a system where 90% of the cases there are settled with pleas. It has to be. There's really no other way. You don't want people to be pleased to something what they didn't do. And there are, and you don't, same thing in divorces. You don't want people to make agreements that are, that they really in good faith can't do and would be injurious to either themselves or the children. But you need people to resolve cases. That's, I always said my main purpose in life as a judge was to settle cases. I thought I did a great job trying cases. I was diligent when I did it. I hope I did a great job when I thought I did. I hope I did a good job set up trying cases. I tried to make it as fair as possible. I tried to really make it a mission to find out what the truth was. But if I had to try a custody case, I had failed because I really should have been able to resolve that case. Or certainly, and I think the attorneys feel that way too. They know how important it is to resolve because because what would happen in a custody case, no matter what you say, it just became an opportunity for the other side to pour off to a, a litany of grievances how bad the other parent is. So if there was any chance of those parents cooperating once the once you resolve the case and then be able to jointly raise their children, those chances were somewhat would be greatly hampered by the mass assault that took place in the guise of a, of a custody trial. One thing that I, this is the thing that I haven't, that I, and I've talked to my colleagues who are there now, and there are some great people and a terrific judge took over my caseload. I tried everything I could the last few last <laughs> year to get as much stuff done. I probably was as energized as I've ever been, but still, Cases I couldn't get them all all resolved. I think a couple of your cases have been left over, right? Yeah, no, a couple of cases. Uh, you know, we we're fortunate to settle. I think the the, the day or two before Christmas, and sure, sure yeah. some of, some of them carry over. But I, I think you know, when I think back to you know your part and, and how you presided over the cases, you're right. You you worked tirelessly with the families, with the attorneys, in the robing room, in the courtroom with the attorneys, with the clients together separately, really trying to help settle cases because you recognize the, the benefit of, of not having a child because when, when people and families are mired in conflict for years and then they have a trial, the chances of them co-parenting years down the road, their child, I would think is next to impossible. But let's segue into that skill set that you had as a judge working with everyone to help settle cases Tell us, Judge, what, what you're doing now in terms of getting back into, you know, the matrimonial, matrimonial thing of things. Yes, I think what's happening in this good segue here is from your prior question is one thing that COVID did and it changed the whole system of, of a mass. Like I had a Wednesday, you would talk about Wednesdays when everybody would come in on their motions. So I had 40 cases and that then left me and it'd be amazing how much it was done that day. 
So that was one day, Wednesday, and then left me Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday for trials or for really sitting down with people and working, having them come in for two, three hours. But now that we took away that motion day for virtual appearances, it's basically the week has become just one hour blocks. It doesn't give you the opportunity to really sit down with litigants. And I have always been convinced that if given enough time with people, and this is a big, big condition, people of goodwill with good, and especially with good lawyers, any case can be resolved. As long as you spend enough time, you listen, you go back and forth here. And so when after I retired, I got a few, I started getting calls from lawyers saying, would you be interested in doing a type of mediation where you sit with, we would come in with our clients. We've been going on for a year, two years. We just have some issues. We just, we just, we're not going to be able to get the time in court because it's the, 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 it's overwhelming there. Plus so much is virtual. We really think if we could actually sit down and do it the old fashioned way, we'll be able to make progress. So that's what I've been doing. I've been doing some of those and it really feels good. It's like the, what I be, like best about having been a judge, sitting down with people, with good lawyers, with talking to litigants, giving them a sense of how I think this is gonna play out. And then all the people coming up with a resolution, sparing the, themselves of a trial, sparing the court, all the time of the trial, and most importantly, sparing their children, having their parents undergoing a trial. Children have to come in and do a Lincoln hearing. And children, will, even if they're five years old, their parents are trying a custody case. They're going to somehow intuitively know that. So this is what this has been. It's been great being able to do this. Good. It's absolutely fantastic. And, and Judge, when you look back at the past two plus years, I'm sure, and I've seen it in my firm, my practice, really the rise in mediation, collaborative law, people looking for ways to resolve their cases out of court. So I think what you're doing now, taking that skill set, taking the way you worked with families and attorneys and clients in the courtroom, taking that to a conference room, still applying, you know, really the, the, the same skill set. And, and given your experience, you're able to say, look, this is how you see the case turning out if you, if you stayed within the court system or you had a trial, you know, three years from now. I was in front of a judge in, in different county, Queens County the other day, and the case has been pending since January 2020. And the other side asked for trial dates. And he said, sure, I can give you trial dates at the end of 2024, because it's from a timing standpoint. And he actually said, why doesn't everybody whether it's work with a neutral evaluator or a mediator, find a way to sit down and really try to settle the case because you're not going to get trial dates anytime soon. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a horrible way to live. That lots of things bad about being divorced, but there are certainly, but they're nowhere near as bad as divorcing. That is the worst period in people's lives, both for themselves and for their children, right? And so 2024, by then, you got, you, your 12-year-old is then going to be 14. There's a major difference. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you seeing? I know it's only been a few months, but what are you seeing in terms of the mediation, in terms of the work that you're doing, working with clients and, and attorneys in the setting that you're working with right now? Well, you know, I actually had a, I did one with one of your colleagues out on Long Island, on your Long Island office. Nice office out there, too. Nice. It's amazing how your firm, how your firm is definitely has a geographical presence in a couple of, and we're in Westchester. And the the Westchester NASA. office, the, the Long Island office we opened up uh, right during the pandemic, the summer of 21. Yeah. And, you know, Mr. Freed is a great, is a great lawyer. He was terrific. And that was, a, yeah, it's a case I want to say too much about it, but yeah, just a real difficult situation where people don't make a lot of money. And what's happened, of course, out of Long Island, the value of a house has gone up so greatly. And then there's going to be, an issue. What, what happens if one, who gets to keep the house? Because what, because if, or can they, or will the house have to be sold? And so we really made some great progress there by going and sitting there, talking to, I talked to both parents. 
who came up with an, basically an operating plan for how they're going to deal with what you call the custody access issues. And then hopefully, and a, and a possible plan for result for dealing with the, with the property. But yeah, that's, I don't know if they would have the same. And it basically took almost four hours. It was very intense. I'm not sure if you could actually do that in court at this point. There it is. It's exactly what we've talked about in terms of being in person and really being hands-on with everybody involved. The hands-on part, really, really, really important. But also one of the things people have is the delay, but also you know, litigation is amazingly expensive. Incredibly expensive. Incredibly. And what I'm seeing right now from the attorney side, the cases go on, they go on. I'm finding there is less discussion in between court appearances than ever before, because you touched on something I think was brilliant, is that when I would see my colleagues in the hallway and I was spending five hours, nine hours in a courtroom, you're able to have really productive, meaningful conversations, not only on the case that you're there on, but I can say to my colleague, hey, I know we have that prenup together. You know, let, let's spend a few minutes and talk about it. I know we have this other case. Let's spend a few minutes and talk about that while we wait. And the other part of it, I think, too, when you mentioned the social interaction and the colleagues and being around people from the attorney side, those are some of the best relationships over the years that I've developed. I mean, some of the people in the matrimonial bar, the matrimonial community, I'm incredibly close with. And a lot of those friendships formed in the hallways of 60 Center Street. And it works to the benefit of your clients, because if the lawyers are able to deal with each other, it's going to be a greater chance of a fair, equitable res resolution. Now, the cases are the worst, of when they, and I didn't have many of these, but where the, where the lawyers don't like each other. So not only do you have spouse, not only do you have two spouses who are fighting over because they don't like each other, you have two lawyers who are fighting because it's a personal grudge. And... Very rarely would that happen, but I've heard tale that that's happening more now when it's done in the virtual world. But some happen, some reason it seems to have exacerbated. But I think it's probably because there's let less of less interaction. So you probably yeah, I, have been there. I, I think things that people would never say in a courtroom, clients or attorneys. I think people, for whatever reason, if you can click a button and magically your video camera goes off or the audio goes bad or Things that people would say virtually, they wouldn't think to say in person in front of a judge or in front of a courtroom filled with 20, 30 other attorneys. Yeah, because remember, for a very lot of time when they're saying this, they're saying it from their living room, right? That's what they're saying. They're, <laughs> sitting at, they're sitting at home in their living room. They're not sitting there with ceilings that are 40 feet high and, uh, and uh, you know, the flag and then God we trust over them. It's a little different, right? It is different. And, and there was something even as an attorney and the clients walking up the courthouse steps, 60 Center Street, walking, you know, up to, you know, your courtroom on, you know, the second floor or, or other judges' courtrooms. There's something to be said for the attorney and also for the client. And it also felt good, you know, to put on a full suit as opposed to, you know, what's happening now <laughs> <laughs> in the virtual world. But for someone who spent, you know, probably, you know, more time in, in a courtroom than in, in my own living room. I mean, I miss being in a courtroom because I know things got done and cases were able to be settled that I think have become harder to settle outside of the courtroom. My prediction, you're gonna, there's going to be more and more of that. I know I'm speaking to my ex-colleagues and there's... They want to start bringing people, you know, let's hope this time we're finally past, we're finally out of the pandemic. They want to bring people back because they realize that it's more difficult to. And I was going to ask you, is that a sentiment that that's shared universally? Amongst, I think, I think yeah. not, not universally, but certainly with, I think, well, so not so much by, maybe not, and not, I think it's less felt by judges who don't do the type of work we do, but judges who do the type of work we do by and large, at least my New York colleagues, my New York County colleagues feel that they did a better job. They were more successful at resolving cases when people came in. Yeah. And I think, and that's evidence in terms of the mediation, like the, the, you know, this mediation, the ones I've done have really made a lot, have really worked really well. And I think part of it is because being able to, okay, let me talk to you. Let's talk to you. Now you step out, you come back in back and forth or else have everybody in the room together then break out again. If you keep pushing 
And you, again, if you're along with people of goodwill who want to come up with a resolution, chances are pretty good you can reach it. Judge, hopefully you'll continue to do it for the foreseeable future because not only will you be fantastic at it, it's such an incredible asset, especially given everything that we talked about. And before we finish up on the Shine On podcast, I know you mentioned your trip to Greece. Is there anything that's on the horizon, something that you're looking forward to do in the post-retirement from, uh, from the bench? Well, definitely looking for, forward to some more trips. Probably, I remember my wife and I decided we probably might hold off a little bit until we, you no longer have to go through the anxiety of having a COVID test in the Athens airport in order to get back. <laughs> Well, what happens if we test positive? We're going to be you know, we're going to come. <laughs> Fortunately, that'll work. But definitely looking forward to, to doing some more traveling. I'm looking forward to, you know, still, like, a lot of times some friends who I really didn't spend as much time with. I'm looking forward to doing that because being a judge, judge is all, can be all encompassing. It's all, it's, oh, it's like you can't. It's exhausting coming home every day after, after probably the way you feel coming home being a lawyer, right? Yeah, no, I get it. And especially given, given what we do. I mean, just people's yeah. lives and the families and you take these cases and you think about them, you think about them when you're home, when you're watching TV, when you're out to dinner, you know, th- there's always that. You're never really not thinking about your work and the people that you work with and their families and their kids. When you love what you do, you take it seriously tremendous you know pride in and with it but it's it's an all encompassing line of work you said it totally you hit it totally when you said you're always thinking about it it's all encompassing so kind of now i'm in the position where a couple of days a week i don't have to think about it <laughs> so <what I'm> doing, <laughs> and so that's what I, that's what i think is allowed me. i don't have to deal with the court system i don't have to deal with the bureaucracy i don't have to deal with certain things i can do some of the work, really the essence of the work that I really love doing, plus have a, have time where I'm just devoted myself and my family. So that's great. Good. And, and Judge, I'm happy for you. Well-deserved. Your impact, your legacy in the matrimonial bar in New York County and, and really all over has been incredible. And all the attorneys who appeared you know, before you, you mentioned it, we talked about it, your ability to settle tough cases in a courtroom and really spend the time, the mentorship, Really, the, the lessons that not only I've learned over the years, and thank you, you know, for that, but, but you name it, you've done it, and your legacy in the matrimonial bar and community is something that not only you should be incredibly proud for, but it's going to continue for quite some time. Great, and thank you for having me on Shine On Podcast. This was a great experience. Judge, thank you very much. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Take care. Episode 38. It's in the books. Judge Matthew Cooper, brilliant stuff, and what a conversation with him. Producer Dave, what an interview, and how great was Judge Cooper? Fantastic. Always like hearing from former judges. They always have such great stories, and you just got an exclusive first interview with Judge Cooper having departed the bench. That's right, Producer Dave, from the bench (laughs) in the black robe to the Shine On podcast. What a great spot with him. And to all the listeners, you can listen to the podcast and all major podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, Pod 617, and check out the Shine On Podcast on the YouTube channel. You can follow the podcast and follow me on social media for the latest content. Head over to ShineOnDivorce.com. I'm Evan Shine, and I'll talk to you again real soon.